Well, a Gallup poll taken in June of this year showed that the number of Americans who believe in God has dropped to its lowest in history at 81%. Now, God in this poll was not qualified, so it can mean a personal God or just some higher power or impersonal force. I think that most people in our society will generally think about the Christian God when they think about God. Culturally speaking, that's probably still more likely, but you can't count on that. And you certainly can't count on those who say that they believe in God or who may even say they believe in the Christian God. You can't count on them actually knowing who he is. Some of those who took the poll are likely to be from different religious backgrounds, from various forms of spiritualism to Islam, among other faiths. Also, according to this Gallup poll, unsurprisingly, it is young liberal Americans who are the least likely to believe in God. Additionally, it was said that only about four in ten say that God, whoever the God is, actually hears prayers and can intervene on our behalf. Only four in ten of that 80% of Americans believe that God hears prayers and can intervene on our behalf. So what does that mean? Well, it means that there are only about eight in ten Americans, again, who participated in the Gallup poll who believe in some form of God. And of those, again, 80%, only 40% of them believe in God, a God who can intervene on our behalf. That means that when we speak to neighbor, friend, and family, we cannot automatically assume that they believe in God. And if they do, we cannot assume they believe in the same God that we do, regardless of what they say. We also cannot believe that they assume that this God is able or willing to intervene in their life should the need arise. Dr. Al Mohler commented on this particular poll data in one of his episodes of The Briefing. He pointed out a number of things. Clearly, our society is becoming more secularized. He defined this as the process by which a civilization, a society, a country, in this case, becomes less and less religious. Specifically, it means that the theological claims have become less and less binding. Secularism, he explained, tends towards liberalism. Liberalism pursues liberation from anything that is binding. Religion tends to be binding on the individual, so of course they would want to reject religion in any form. He also pointed out that there's a difference between the question, do you believe in God, and do you believe in a personal God, or do you have a personal faith in God that's binding upon you? People may say that they believe in God. People will talk about God all the time. They may even use the term the Lord to to refer to God. But it doesn't mean that they're referring to the same God. And it doesn't mean that they have any sense of obligation towards this God. He also mentioned that the reality is that if there is indeed a God, and if he has revealed himself in his word, that his word is binding upon us. In other words, those liberal secularists are in fact missing a crucial aspect of what it means to be a creature. Their creator is calling and they are in rebellion. And of course that rebellion has consequences. I would add that not only are they missing the binding authority that God has on their lives and the danger of consequences, but they're also missing the blessing. We maintain that we know God, not just any God, but the true and living God. That this God does have authority over us, but that he never abuses it. He always exercises it for our good. 
We maintain that we never have to worry if he will hear us because in his grace he's given us access to his throne in heaven by the blood of Jesus, his son. We maintain that our God is good, that his disposition toward us is love, and that because he is good and because his disposition is love, he will always hear us and he will always come to our aid whenever we call for him. Well, we're continuing in our series through Jonah. In chapter 1, we were reminded of Jonah's commissioning. He was a prophet of the Lord, and prophets prophesy. That's what they do. They do the will of the Lord. They proclaim the will of the Lord. They proclaim his word. That's not what Jonah did. Jonah rebelled against the will and word of the Lord. And thus we see that Jonah endured consequences, and these consequences were great. The Lord used supernatural means to discipline his rebellious prophet. The Lord was not willing to leave Jonah in his disobedience, and so he used the means of his disobedience to work out those consequences. As Jonah fled from the presence and purpose of the Lord in a ship traveling across the Mediterranean in the opposite direction from where we were supposed to go, the text says that the Lord hurled a great wind at the sea. It's almost comical. This great wind stirred up a mighty tempest, and that mighty tempest threatened to destroy the ship. That meant that Jonah and everyone on board the ship were in danger of losing their lives. And in spite of an initial cover-up, Jonah trying to go onto the ship incognito, he eventually had to confess who he was, that he's a prophet of the Lord, that he serves the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land, but that he was running from him. As a result, the sailors on board tried to save him, but eventually had to cast him overboard to avoid everyone on board being lost. The sailors came to know the Lord through that experience. They heard of him and learned of his power and authority in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise known. And as for Jonah, he was cast into the sea. The sea became calm for the sailors They were likely able to make it back to dry land to fulfill their commitment to the Lord, but Jonah was lost in the sea. Somewhere in the Mediterranean with apparently no hope and no help from his fellow man. That's where we pick up this morning. Jonah, the rebellious prophet, has been cast into the sea, and we're left wondering what will happen next. Of course, most of us know what will happen next because we've heard the story of Jonah before. However, before we move on, I just want you to put yourself into Jonah's shoes for a moment. R.C. Sproul commented that one of the benefits of the narrative genre in the Bible is that we're more easily able to read the Bible existentially. By that, he doesn't mean to conjure up some of the nonsensical means that secular philosophers develop to read ancient writings. Instead, he meant that we should read the Bible with the realization that people like Jonah are just like us. The historical accounts of people like Jonah are not intended to be read as myths. They're not intended to be read in a detached theoretical way. We're supposed to see Jonah as a human being, a flesh and blood person just like us, who cares and has concerns just like us, who reacts to things that happen in the normal course of life just like us. We know Jonah's motivation for running, he said already in chapter 4, verse 2. He didn't believe that the city of Nineveh should be spared, and he knew that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, So he didn't want to give them the opportunity to receive the compassion of the Lord. So he ran. 
But now his running doesn't seem like such a good idea. Now as he's sinking into the depths of the vast sea, he realizes that he's out of options. Think about that. You're in the middle of the sea. Your human companions are gone at this point. There's no one else on earth you can turn to. You're literally at your lowest, sinking into the depths of the sea, and no way to get out of it. Your life is over and done. You've probably literally breathed your last breath. What do you do? Jonah, for his part, turned and sought the Lord. He set his hope on the Lord as the God who hears and answers the prayers of his people. And I think that is our lesson for this morning. In the midst of any distress, a believer is one who will seek the Lord. And we seek him with confidence that he is, that he does hear, and that he will answer our call. Because that is who he is. Again, that's where we pick up in chapter 2. I'll read chapter 2 for us now. We're going to start with chapter 1, verse 17, which in the original is actually a part of chapter 2. And then we'll read through the end and then get into the text. So starting at chapter 1, verse 17, and then reading through chapter 2. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord of my, of my, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and he, you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let us pray. Father, once again, we come before you, and we ask that you speak for your servants are listening. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, an outline for this passage is pretty simple. There are three basic movements. We see the Lord's act of compassion as bookends of the passage in verse one, chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 2, verse 10. And then we see Jonah's contrition in the middle, sandwiched between the two. So the Lord's first act of compassion in chapter 1, verse 17, Jonah's contrition in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and then another of the Lord's act of compassion in chapter 2, verse 10. That's the flow of the passage. Well, let's look at the Lord's first act of compassion in chapter 1, verse 17 again. There it reads, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, there are two questions that immediately come to the fore when we meet this verse. First, what exactly does the Lord do here? That's been the subject of much question. And perhaps 
More importantly, the second question, why does he do it? We'll get to that in just a moment. Well, what does the Lord do? The text says that he appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and that Jonah was in that fish for three days and three nights. Well, again, what exactly happens here has been subject to much debate. This verse in the book of Jonah is why many people discount Jonah as historical. This has become one of those aha verses that secularists and the unbelieving world as a whole point to, to prove that, of course, the Bible cannot be speaking truth because this kind of thing just can't happen. They would say it's impossible. It would be miraculous if miraculous things happen, but clearly they do not. Fish do not swallow people whole, hold on to them for three days, and then spit them out alive. Scanning the headlines for such a thing makes that clear. Perhaps some have been mistakenly swallowed or almost swallowed by large sea animals, but you cannot expect for any sane scientific mind to accept something as unnatural as this large fish, or as some suppose perhaps a whale, that it would come along, swallow this man whole, and then again hold on to him for three days in his belly without consuming him, and then spit him out alive. Jonah presumably having no access to food and clean water. You can't expect for us to believe that. The problem is, that is what the text says. And it doesn't say it for shock value. There's no indication in the text that this should be taken as a simile or a metaphor. There's no indication that this is a parable of what happened. The poetic portion of this text doesn't even begin to verse 3. So verses 1 and 2 continue in narrative format in the same way as the previous chapter. When you read a story, a narrative, a historical account, you expect to see certain things. This happened and then that happened and this person went that place. And that's what you see in the life of Jonah. That's what you see in the first two verses where we see Jonah being swallowed whole by this fish. In other words, the text is assuming that we understand just as sure as the Lord called Jonah to go to Nineveh in chapter 2. In chapter 1, I'm sorry. Just as sure as he hurled a great wind that caused a mighty tempest to arise. Just as sure as the sailors went through the motions to attempt to save the ship, casting things overboard. That's what we would expect for sailors to do. Just as sure as they called out to their respective gods for help when nothing else worked, just as sure as they eventually threw Jonah into the sea, the Lord also appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and he was in its belly for three days. That's what happened. Now, though it is a part of the normal course of the narrative, the text gives us clues that the appearance and actions of the great fish were, in fact, not normal. I made this point the last time, but there was a great wind that caused a mighty tempest earlier in chapter 1, and it was supposed to be clear to you that that was not normal. It was not a natural or commonly occurring storm. Even the sailors' responses to it indicated that it was not something that they'd seen before on these waters. It threatened to break up the ship, and presumably this ship had crossed the Mediterranean on the way to Tarshish many times before. They knew these waters. They were familiar with these waters. Storms are not something new to sailors, but this storm was something new. This storm was something different, and it was so because it was a supernatural work. 
Thus, we also saw the sailors attempting to call upon their gods for supernatural help. Thus, we also saw this storm, as bad as it was already, continuing to grow more and more tempestuous. The great wind, the mighty tempest, in other words, the great fish, these were all of the Lord's doing. And again, he is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He made everything, including those things in the sea and on the dry land. He made it all. The text has been clear already that this is who the Lord is. Therefore, it should be clear that the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land has authority and power over everything in the sea and on the dry land. The text assumes that we would understand that the Lord, the God of heaven, would be able to appoint a large fish to swallow Jonah whole. Furthermore, that this same Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land, would be able to control the fish in such a way that it didn't consume Jonah, but that it preserved Jonah for the entirety of the three days. Would it really be too difficult for him? Perhaps for us it would be difficult. Perhaps in the normal course of the life of whatever sea creature it was, it would have been unlikely. But these circumstances were not normal. The Lord was intervening. He was at work in history, in real time, in the life of Jonah and in the life of this fish. The fact that he is able to do this shouldn't surprise us. Even the previously unbelieving pagan sailors understood this when they confessed, You, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. The miraculous is only miraculous to us. It is not miraculous to the Lord. We need to remember who we're dealing with. It's easy sometimes to forget and to ascribe to God limitations that we have. It's easy to ascribe to him weaknesses that we have. But the Lord is not so limited. The natural laws were created by him. He generally upholds them, but because he is creator, he's also able to circumvent them whenever he pleases because he is God. This truth is not unique to Jonah. We've seen the Lord work what we would consider miracles in real time in the lives of human beings throughout the history of humanity recorded in the pages of scripture. What is perhaps the greatest miracle in the fullness of time There would arise another prophet. He would declare all the word and will of the Lord. He would obey when others failed. He would be obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And yet just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so also the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Savior, King Jesus, would be in the belly of the earth for three days. And in subversion of what was natural, he would rise again from the dead by the power of God. And he would do so, and he would offer the same eternal life that he has to all who believe in the God of heaven through him. God is able to do all things. With man, things may be impossible, but with God, not so. Well, in this text, we have to understand that God was at work here. He appointed the fish. He called this fish, and unlike Jonah, who was made in the image of God, who was one of God's special people, The fish simply obeyed, and it swallowed Jonah whole and kept him preserved for the entirety of the three days. Again, I said there were two questions. First, what exactly did the Lord do? Second, why did he do it? For that, we'll have to look in this next section, Jonah's contrition, 
chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 again. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Again, here we see Jonah's contrition. I'm using that as a synonym for repentance because that's really what we see and hear in the words of Jonah. By way of observation, the prayer recorded in chapter 2, as it says, was a prayer that Jonah offered up while he was in the belly of the fish. After he was swallowed by the fish, he uttered this prayer. However, during this prayer, he makes reference to another prayer that he uttered while he was in the sea. The exact words of that prayer we don't have, but we get elements of it as we read through Jonah's words here. In other words, at some point during his three-day stay in the belly of the fish, Jonah prayed. And in his prayer, he's thinking back upon his prayer while he was in the belly of Sheol, as he says, in the depths of the sea. Well, this prayer from the belly of the fish has been described as a song of thanksgiving. In the original, it is in the form of Hebrew poetry. It's written as a song. Like many of the psalms, we have psalms of thanksgiving. This would be a similar sort of thing that Jonah is writing. Jonah as a whole is a narrative account with prayer in chapter 2, written as poetry. Some have argued that the break from narrative into poetry here in chapter 2 is indicative of this poem being a later edition, but actually it really makes sense when you think about it. Jonah has just gone from being a respected prophet to a rebellious prophet. And as a rebellious prophet, he's received the chastening hand of the Lord. And this chastening has been such that his life was in danger and, in fact, nearly over. But instead of meeting his end at the bottom of the Mediterranean, he is miraculously rescued and finds himself preserved in the belly of a fish. This prayer, this song, expresses relief, joy, and thanksgiving to the Lord, to whom alone belongs salvation. Well, what does Jonah say during this prayer? First, again, he reflects on his prayer in the sea. His prayer in the sea was a prayer of repentance. And again, although we don't have the exact wording, we can see certain elements. Look again at the text. What do we see? Well, one clear element of Jonah's prayer while he was in the sea is found in verse 2. Jonah says, I sought the Lord. He sought the Lord when he was at his lowest. I cried out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. He says, I cried out to the Lord. I called out to the Lord and later I cried. This is a symbolic way of indicating Jonah's prayer. He's going to say later in verse 7, my prayer came to you. This is what prayer is. Prayer is a calling out to the Lord. Sometimes it is a cry. Sometimes it is a whisper. Always it is a conversation with the creator. It is communication with the God of heaven. Prayer is an essential part in the life of a believer. It is more unnatural for believers not to pray. 
R.C. Sproul said that prayer is to the Christian what breath is to life. We are commanded to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. We're commanded to pray at all times with all perseverance for the saints, Ephesians 6.18. We're commanded to pray because the Lord cares for us, 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Prayer is a command as an expression of our dependence on God. The Lord knows what we need before we ask. Jesus made that clear in Matthew 6. We're not praying because he doesn't know what we need. We are praying because as a good father, he expects for us to ask what we need. And he takes pleasure in hearing and answering those prayers. As believers, when we pray, we can have confidence that the Lord will hear because Jesus gives us access to the throne of God in heaven. Again, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. There the writer of Hebrews reminded us that because we have such a great high priest in the Lord Jesus, we may come boldly before the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in any time of need. Back to our text. In chapter 1, while the ship was in danger of breaking up, The captain came to Jonah and pled with him to pray to his God because he says, perhaps the God will hear us. Now, we didn't have any indication that Jonah actually prayed at that point, but we do know that he prayed while he was sinking in the depths of the Mediterranean. Back to our text, he uttered this prayer out of his distress. This was a distressing time, if you can imagine. More than that, he says his prayer came out of the belly of Sheol. Sheol is a poetic name for the grave. It is a place of the dead. Jonah is indicating that he felt that his life was over at this point. In other words, again, he was at his lowest. He felt that he had nowhere else to go, no one to turn to, nothing else he could depend on. At that time, he sought the Lord. Remember, again, Jonah was fully aware that this had happened as a result of his own disobedience. He knew that the Lord was the one who brought him to this place. Look at verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah was clear this was from the hand of the Lord. The Lord had cast him into the deep, not the sailors. I'm reminded of Ephesians 6, where where Paul says there that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, that all of the things that we deal with are a matter of spiritual have a spiritual component to it. And so quick are we when we're going through something distressing to look at people and other people and the difficulty and pain that other people have caused us and we're quick to look to them and point at them and shake our fingers at them. How dare you? How could you? Without thinking first to ourselves, how is the Lord at work in this? Jonah knew that the Lord had cast him into the heart of the sea. It was his flood, his waves, his billows that passed over Jonah's head on the way down into the depths. But in spite of this, in spite of him knowing that it was a chastening hand of God against him, Jonah still turned to God for help. We've all seen the opposite before, right? Perhaps we've been there. Some trial or tragedy strikes the life of a believer or a professing believer and they grow angry at the Lord, hostile towards them. How could the Lord let this happen? If he were good and all-powerful, wouldn't he stop it? Why is he punishing me this way? If not that, we may give in to self-pity. To submit to our pain as a victim of life and circumstance. We simply give in. We give up. We stop trying. 
Maybe we give in to self-loathing. What appears to be a pious act, berating ourselves for our failure, hating ourselves for sins committed, punishing ourselves in our mind and heart, as if our own ability to punish ourselves and to speak evil of ourselves and to speak down about ourselves is going to be enough. That response is really more pride than anything else. Pride and preoccupation of self masquerading otherwise. In times of distress, we tend to think that we should have all the right answers, that we should know what to do, and we get frustrated when we don't. We think that we should have it all together and stoically face all of our problems. And we come to church and we gather with others with a smile on our faces while all the while we're broken inside and hurting. And trying to hide of it, hide it. Others, just as the sailors in chapter 1 in the midst of adversity, turned to their other gods for comfort. The folks who would claim to have no faith in God, such as those mentioned at the beginning of the message, turned to the gods of material wealth, the gods of alcohol and drugs to dull their senses. The God of food, the God of sex, the God of their appetites. They reach out to their other gods in times of distress. Gods who will ultimately fail them because they they are no gods at all. They have no care for them. Jonah turned to the Lord when he was at his lowest. When he experienced the greatest suffering on his deathbed, as it were. Of course, for those who question whether or not believers should even suffer, remember back when we covered chapter 1, the reality is that the Lord does indeed chasten his people. And this is what we see in the life of Jonah. The Lord is disciplining him for his rebellion, his disobedience. And we read in Hebrews that the Lord does this. And even though discipline in the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The Lord does it for our good. And we know that this doesn't explain all the suffering that we endure. All suffering is not for the sake of discipline. Some suffering is as a result of our testimony, our claim of allegiance to Christ and the preaching of the gospel. Some suffering happens as a result of the fact that we live in a fallen world with sinful people who do sinful things that affect us. And some suffering simply happens as a result of that same fallen world And the effect that it has on our bodies, that our bodies are weak and frail and prone to illness and weakness and sickness and disease. Regardless of why we suffer, we have to acknowledge two things. First, as Job said to his wife, shall we accept good from the hand of God and not adversity? In other words, we have to understand that God allows both in his sovereignty. And just as we accept good from the hand of God, we're we're quick to rejoice over good things that happen. And to say, thank you, God, I'm blessed and I'm highly favored of the Lord. We also have to accept adversity because both come from his hand. We may not like the reason it comes from his hand. We may not like the thing that he is giving to us, but we have to accept that both come from him. Because he is God. The second thing we have to remember is that it works both ways. The same God who allows adversity is still the giver of every good and perfect gift. This is particularly difficult to acknowledge while we're suffering. It's hard for us to remember that the same God who's allowing this suffering to take place in our life is still good. But we must remember that truth. Because who else is there for us to turn to? The hand that disciplines is also the hand that provides comfort. 
In our text, again, when Jonah faced the consequences of his sin and the chastening hand of the Lord, he turned back to the Lord for help. This is the mark of a true believer. A believer is one who clings to the Lord in the midst of adversity. A believer is one who seeks the Lord in the midst of adversity. The believer believes that God is, that God is sovereignly in control of all things. Yes, even this terrible thing that's happening to me. And in spite of that, they still believe that God is good. If we learn nothing else from the responses of Jonah to the Lord and the Lord's work in his life, we have to learn that in the midst of our distress, we need to seek the Lord, to seek him for his compassion, not to run and hide. Look back again at the text. I cried out to the Lord, verse 2, and he answered me. I cried and you heard my voice. He is the Lord. He is good. So, of course, he will incline his ear to us. He'd never turn us away. Last week, our guest preacher shared with us from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. There we were reminded that we are justified before God in Jesus Christ. And because we're justified before him, we have peace with him. That peace will never end. God won't all of a sudden, for those who are in Christ, decide to become angry with us and turn us away. It doesn't work that way. That's not who he is. If you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus, you have, present tense, and will always have peace with God. And so you can always assume that even if the Lord is chastening you for your disobedience, that you still have peace with God. And that he is still willing to receive you with open arms. And if you can do nothing else, you can pray, Lord, I need you. I have no one else to go to, and I need you now. And I think that's what Jonah was doing as he was sinking into the depths. Moving on, again, thinking about the elements of his prayer of repentance in the sea. Not only did he turn toward the Lord to seek him in the midst of his stress, but he also hoped in the Lord. He turned to the Lord with confidence. Verse 4, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look to your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah hoped in the Lord. He says, I'm driven away from your sight. Again, acknowledging that the Lord is the one who brought him to this low estate. It was not some accident. It was not chance. It was not the sailors. It was the Lord. He drove Jonah away from his sight. Jonah's probably reflecting a bit upon the fact that earlier in his account, he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now he's acknowledging that the Lord is the one doing the driving as he's sinking into the depths. But in spite of that, Jonah had hope. Yet I shall again look to your temple. Jonah said, I know that I ought to look toward the temple of the Lord. I like what one author commented here. What saved Jonah? His faith in God's promise. Which promise? He says the promise that involves looking towards the, the, God's holy temple. When King Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, he asked God for this special favor. And then he quotes 1 Kings chapter 8. 
There, Solomon said this, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward this temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways whose heart you know, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. What is Solomon saying here? When he dedicated the temple, he said, Lord, if anyone prays toward this temple, I pray that you hear them. And Jonah, when he was at his lowest, said, you know what? I need to turn my heart and attention back to the Lord because he is the God who hears. And when I pray towards his temple, I know that he will hear me and answer. He said again, I shall look upon your holy temple, meaning I will lift up my prayer to you. And his expectation was that the Lord would hear him. Jonah prayed to the Lord as an expression of hope in the Lord. Humanly speaking, there was no reason for him to have any hope. Again, verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. It is as if he were locked in prison, totally surrounded by darkness, locked down by the weeds in various underwater plant life, locked in, lost forever in the depths of the sea. That is how he felt. That was his evaluation of his life. But again, we have the yet. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While in the depths, Jonah remembered. This time he remembered a little more than the theology lesson that he gave to the sailors. He remembered that God is a person. He is a person and he interacts with his people as a person. When the people of God refer to God, they don't have to wonder if, as the captain said in chapter 1, perhaps the God will give a thought to us. No, we remember and confess that the Lord is our God. That's what Jonah says, isn't it? At the end of verse 6, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. He says, you are my God, my king, my savior. You are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting concerning calamity. That is true of you, and you are my God. Therefore, you will act that way towards me. That is what you've promised in your word. You will hear, and you will relent concerning calamity as I come before you, as I lift up my prayer to you. That was his hope. And when he calls out to the Lord, the true and living God, that the Lord would hear and that he would answer. We'll sing in just a little while, whatever my God ordains is right. How can we sing that song? How can we sing that song with any confidence that whatever he ordains is right? We can sing that song with confidence because he is our God. That's what we say, isn't it? He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him I leave it all. And so to him I leave it all. Jonah prayed with hope, with the expectation that his God, the Lord, would hear and answer because he is real. He is true. He is faithful. He does care and will act for our good when we call. Well, again, Jonah was reflecting back on his time 
that he spent in the grave, the time that he spent in Sheol in verses 2 through 6. He had nowhere else to go, no one to turn to, but he remembered the Lord. He remembered who the Lord is. Yes, he is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Yes, he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and relenting concerning calamity. But ultimately, as Jonah says, he is my God. I asked a question earlier, why did God send the fish to swallow Jonah? The answer is here. He sent the fish to swallow Jonah because Jonah prayed for help. Jonah asked for help from the Lord. And the Lord sent this fish to help him, to preserve his life, to bring him up from the pit, so to speak. The Lord heard his prayer and sent deliverance. I wonder, is he your God this morning? Have you trusted him? Do you trust him as you endure the trials of life? Do you reach out to him in prayer with confidence that he'll hear and respond? If your answer is no to any of those questions, what are you waiting for? Perhaps more importantly, who are you trusting in? The Lord, the God of heaven, is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents concerning calamity. He listens to those who pray to him, to those who come to him in faith, to those who seek his face. What are you waiting for? As we move on to verses 7 through 9, Jonah no longer reflects on his prayer in the sea. He's now looking forward with thanksgiving, and he recommits himself to the Lord. When I was fainting, when my life was fainting away, verse 7, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 7 is a summary of where we've been. Again, when my life was fainting away, he was in the depths of the sea. I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Again, when he was at his lowest, as a believer does, he reached out and he sought after the Lord. He sought him for his compassion. Verse 8 is the epitome of folly. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And there's a lot that's been made over the translation of this verse because it's a little complex in the original. I think the ESV has a good translation, though, and the idea is very simple. There are those who pay regard to vain idols. They give them their full attention. They offer sacrifices to their idols. They sacrifice their time, their talents, and their treasures. Idols can be any number of different things, not just physical objects. One author said it this way, an idol is anything that takes away from the from, from God, the affection and obedience that rightfully belongs only to him. Jonah was not physically worshiping idols, yet at the same time, he was in rebellion against God. He was giving regard to vain and worthless idols. He was not worshiping the true and living God. If he had, he would have obeyed the Lord's command. Instead, he worshiped the ideology of Israel's preeminence over other nations. He worshiped the pride of being a prophet and being the one to proclaim the word of the Lord as if he had the ability to choose to proclaim it to one or another. Those who regard vain idols are all who do not worship and obey the true and living God. Whether they favor idols of stone or costly metals, idols of ideas and philosophies, idols of material possessions, or idols of their own appetites, it doesn't really matter. Jonah needed to repent. He needed to turn away from the idols of his heart and back to the true and living God. And in his mind, he did not do this until he was lost at sea. 
Remember, we talked about the picture of repentance from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, turning away from idols to serve the true and living God. And that's what Jonah does here. He says, I need to turn away from the idols of my own heart. And that's what we all need to do. That's what repentance is. Again, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. Now, typically, when we think about repentance, turning away from sin, we think about it in the context of the judgment of God. Turn away from sin because the judgment of God is coming for you. And that is true. People need to repent because the judgment of God is coming, but it's more than that. And I think Jonah gets to the heart of it here. Again, back in our text, he says, those who regard vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. If you pursue an idol instead of the Lord, then you will miss out on the privilege of his steadfast love, his steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness. Again, a part of that grand declaration of the glory of the character of God. He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Rejecting the Lord, then, is not simply a matter of being declared wicked and deserving judgment. Jonah felt that way towards the Ninevites. It is that, but it's not only that. Rejecting the Lord is also a matter of losing the privilege and experience of the steadfast love of the Lord. Do you see that? When we turn away from the Lord, when the unbelieving world turns away from the Lord, they are missing out on the goodness of his steadfast love toward them. And as we look upon the world with compassion, we have to remember that. It's easier to think about the judgment that they deserve when we see their wickedness and their sin and we see how it impacts us. But if we look upon them with a compassionate heart, as the Lord does, and we see not only do they deserve his judgment, but they're also missing out on something wonderful. This is the crown jewel. This is the $1.2 billion jackpot that someone has claimed, apparently. To know the Lord, to experience his steadfast love is better than life itself. We who know the Lord should truly covet this for those who don't know him. I mean, when was the last time you found something good and decided just to keep it for yourself and hide it under a, under a blanket? When we find something good, when we find something we enjoy, something we delight in, what do you do? You tell people about it. You share it with others. What's better than the steadfast love of the Lord? If you believe that, how often do you tell others about it? When was the last time you told someone about the steadfast love of the Lord, that it never changes? That he is faithful to his commitment to love you and all those who are called by his name? The world is always talking about love. Love wins this, love wins that. What they're really talking about is satisfying the desires of their flesh. They want this or they want that, and so that's love to them. But they don't know the love of the Lord. But we can offer them that. We have that to offer as his people because we know his love. When was the last time you bragged about the steadfast love of the Lord? That he holds you in the palm of his hand, that he'll never let you go. That he works, he is sovereignly in control of all things and that he works all things together for your good. That nothing, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. When was the last time you told someone about that? Again, back in our text, verse 9, we see Jonah's commitment. 
as all of this is coming to a head in Jonah's mind, his response, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Again, Jonah was on the way to Tarshish in rebellion against the Lord, down in the belly of the sea, as it were, in the depths of Sheol, the place of the dead. Now alive from the dead, in the belly of the great fish, Jonah cries out with a shout of thanksgiving, I will do what I have been called to do. I will sacrifice. I will pay what I have vowed. I will do what you've called me to do as a prophet. Will you send me? I will go. What you command, I will preach. Again, repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. It's more than just simply feeling sad about wrong you've done. I think that's what we see here, at least in part, in the life of Jonah. As we get into chapter 3, we'll continue to see that worked out in the life in his life. He says, I have been firsthand reminded of the steadfast love of the Lord. I have been firsthand reminded of his compassion to sinners because he saved me a sinner. I must obey him. I must serve him. Disobedience is no longer an option for me. Oh, that we would all have that attitude as his people, that we would feel obligated to serve the Lord, that we would feel obligated to obey the word of the Lord. Disobedience should not be an option for us. I like R.C. Sproul comment on obedience. He says, obedience is the minimal requirement of a citizen of God's kingdom. The very least that we can do is obey. You think about obedience that way? We know of his love, we know of his compassion, we know of his grace. What is the only logical, the only wise, the only right response to the goodness of the Lord? It's to simply obey him. It's to do his will. It's Romans 12, right? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He says, because of God's mercies, present your body to him as a living sacrifice. Just do his will. Obey him. Again, back in our text, Jonah says emphatically, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is his. It is his to give alone. It belongs to him. He gives it to whomever he desires. Listen, he gave it to me. He rescued me from death, a death that I deserve. Salvation is his to give, even to Nineveh if he chooses. My only right response is to serve him. And we know that this attitude of Jonah's will be tested in the chapters to come, but for now it appears that he's learned a valuable lesson from this experience. He's learned precisely what the Lord wanted him to know, and he's committed to obeying the Lord's command. As Jonah concludes his prayer, we see in chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord's second act of compassion. And the Lord spoke to the fish and had vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Again, the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land, he made it all. Thus, he has authority over all, and he's proved in no uncertain terms in this account of Jonah's rebellion. Had Jonah responded to the call of the Lord the way the fish responded to the call of the Lord, things would have gone very differently in the book of Jonah. Nevertheless, the Lord appointed the fish to swallow Jonah in the beginning of this section. And here we see the Lord simply spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up on dry land. For the fish, it was that simple. The Lord speaks and it obeyed. Certainly being swallowed up by a fish would have been an ordeal. And being vomited up by the same fish three days later would not have been pleasant. But all of that, I think, was probably preferable to Jonah as opposed to drowning in the sea. 
We cannot, however, miss that this whole ordeal of Jonah and the fish was all about the Lord's deliverance of Jonah. It was intended to be an object lesson to Jonah that indeed salvation is of the Lord. He can choose to grant salvation to whomever he wills. Jonah had no claim on the salvation of the Lord. In the course of his sovereign chastening, Jonah could have lost his life, and he probably should have. Instead, the Lord chose to spare his life because he is compassionate. Well, this lesson is clear, and it sets the stage for a repeat of chapter 1's commissioning as we move forward into chapter 3. Jonah is back on dry land by that time, presumably back in the direction of his homeland and Nineveh, and not Tarshish, which was a couple of thousand miles in the opposite direction. From here, we'll see just how much Jonah has learned and what the Lord's intent is for the city of Nineveh. By way of conclusion, none of us will likely ever have to spend three days in the belly of a fish, and I think we're all glad about that. None of us will have to be vomited up by a fish onto dry land. But we all do at times suffer. And when we suffer, we are to do what Jonah did. We are to seek the Lord for his compassion. Because we remember that he is God and he is good. That is, in fact, the message that we proclaim to the lost. The Lord our God is the God of heaven. He is God and he is good. He is in control of all things and whatever he ordains for you and me is right. We just have to trust him. Now they may not believe the story of a man swallowed by a large fish in the middle of the ocean, but they could believe you. When you share with them how the Lord has worked in your life, when you share with them how the Lord has preserved you through difficulty after difficulty, difficult season after difficult season, hurt and pain after hurt and pain, when you share with them how the Lord preserved your life through all of those things and has kept you because of his compassion and his steadfast love, then they'll listen. Then they'll be able to see how the Lord is at work in the life of humans, in the life of people. And they'll see that the Lord does indeed hear when we call out to him and when we cry out to him. Proclaim him, beloved. Let the world know that salvation does indeed belong to the Lord. Father, thank you again for today. Thank you for your word, which is true, your word which sanctifies us. Thank you for reminding us of your truth as we have considered the life of Jonah the prophet over these couple of weeks. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't Act as functional atheists as Jonah did. That in the midst of our being drawn away by sin and by foolishness, that we wouldn't give regard to vain idols, but we would instead continue to seek after you, to seek your face. And that should we fall into various trials, Lord, whether it be consequences of our own sin or consequences of living in a fallen world that we live in, that we would always turn our focus and attention back to you. And that, Lord, as you deliver us in any affliction, that you would use us to proclaim the truths of your goodness to others so that we can speak comfort into their lives as they go through any affliction. Thank you for these reminders. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your compassion and your grace and your steadfast love toward us. In Christ's blessed name, amen.